everyone, and welcome to this latest edition of the UK and a Changing Europe's Brexit and Beyond podcast. And my guest this week is Professor Stephen Wetherill, who is, would you believe, Jack DeLore Professor of EU Law at the University of Oxford. Hi, Steve. Hi, Anand, and I'm very happy to be here today. Full disclosure, Steve and I are friends. We go back a long way. We've even written together. So if this sounds a bit chummy, that's why. More to the point, Steve has just produced for us a working paper, which I recommend to you most strongly, about the UK's internal market. And I think it's fair to say in this working paper, Steve, that you don't exactly pull your punches. And and specifically, one of the things you say about it is the UK has created for itself an internal market that is divided and divisive. Can you just explain what you mean by that? Yeah, we've got a problem here that has been submerged while the United Kingdom was a member of the European Union. It has urged once Brexit has occurred. And the problem is maintaining the integrity of the internal market of the United Kingdom. There are four bits to the United Kingdom. They have in different ways, different regulatory competencies. Problem is what? if they regulate the market in different ways. Different ways for Northern Ireland, different ways for Scotland, different ways ways for Wales and different ways for England. Uh, And the the divided bit is that Northern Ireland is subject to a separate set of rules from the rest of the protocol, whereas Scotland and Wales are subject to the rules of the internal market, which might be subverted by the Internal Market Act. And, and the consequence of this are quite interesting. I mean, on the one hand, you have you have a, a single the Northern Ireland point is is fascinating in the, the sense that you have sort of a separation in regulatory terms between Northern Ireland and the UK. But within the UK, one of the things you argue that's quite interesting is that this isn't neutral. This in fact creates a deregulatory dynamic across the UK. Can you give a practical example of how that might work? Yeah, I can. The way that the Internal Market Act operates is to require that if a product is made lawfully in one part of the United Kingdom, then it's entitled to access to the market in all other parts of the United Kingdom unless specific exceptions apply. Practical example, imagine that the Scottish government decided it wished to develop a campaign against obesity. So it requires that fattening foods be labelled to show their harmful consequences. It might even go so far as to regulate for the content of particular fattening foods. Now, if the Scottish government imposes those rules, then they bind producers based in Scotland. But a producer in England, where the rules against obesity are not in place, can simply ignore the Scottish rules when that importer, uh, when that exporter from England to Scotland reaches the Scottish market. So the Scottish rules are deprived of practical effect with regard to products coming from other parts of the UK. So in a sense, this deprives the Scots and the Welsh of any kind of regulatory autonomy in the areas covered by this bill, because essentially it means that English producers can just ignore whatever they do? That's what it does, unless one of the very carefully drawn exceptions applies. So you've got the promise to to Scotland and Wales of uh, the devolved settlement, including the power to set food standards, which is in not in form, but in practice, subverted by this act in the sense that English producers can, as you say, just ignore the Scottish and Welsh rules once they hit the Scottish and Welsh markets from England, where most production in the UK occurs. So would you agree with those in Wales, and I think particularly at the time in Scotland, who said that this bill was basically a power grab in terms of devolution? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It it takes the devolution settlement and it guts it of much of its purpose. It means that the Scottish government and the Welsh Senate retained the powers that they were allocated under the devolution settlement to set rules 
four Scottish producers, four Welsh producers, but they lose the power to apply those rules on Scottish and Welsh territory in application to imports from England. Now, I mean, it's fair to say, I think, if you read the working paper, that you're not a massive fan of the internal market bill. Some of your language is very negative. You call it deceptive, divisive, lacking detail. Is your opposition to it because you think it's bad law or because you don't like it or you don't like the Brexit that it stems from? All those things, I guess. Uh, I mean, the, the main problem I have is that it is aggressively deregulatory and disrespectful of regulatory divergence within the United Kingdom. I mean, the Scots, the Welsh, the English might choose to do things differently. They have different administrations, different voters. Uh, there shouldn't be any objection in principle to the existence of regulatory divergence. What this Internal Market Act does is set aside respect for regulatory divergence, except in very unusual circumstances, and impose instead, in place of regulatory divergence, free trade. Now, that seems to me to be an unbalanced embrace of trade over regulatory concerns which have animated action in Scotland in Wales. I suppose two questions come from that. Firstly is, isn't this just a sort of de facto or de jure recognition of the fact that we have massively asymmetrical federalism in the United Kingdom, that essentially England is so big, it wouldn't make much sense to do anything any other way. And secondly, even if you deny that, how would you deal with regulatory pluralism within Great Britain in particular? Let's leave Northern Ireland to one side for the moment. I mean, does this mean you're talking about checks on goods going from one jury jurisdiction to another? No, it, it certainly reflects but also promotes the dominance of England. I mean, England's obviously the biggest part of the United Kingdom. It's where most, most economic activity occurs. That's why there's all the more reason that the Scottish and Welsh preferences should be given a degree of respect, because otherwise they are going to be trampled underfoot in a way which doesn't do due respect to the devolved settlement in particular and to the sentiments of, of Scots and Welsh voters in general. So, so, so what's needed is to give more room to the Scottish and Welsh rules to be justified according to standards such as environmental protection, which is excluded from the Act, such as cultural protection, which is excluded from the Act. There'd be no question of checks on the uh, M74 or at Carter Bar uh, or at the Seven Bridge, but there would be scope for the Welsh and Scottish governments applying stricter rules to products coming from England, just as they would to their local products as well. It's that diversity within the market which is suppressed by the Act. Okay, from Diversity to division, we should talk about Northern Ireland briefly. And you've written some very, very good stuff on the protocol as well, I should say. But do you think the protocol can be made to work in its current form? I think it probably can. It was written as a carefully crafted compromise, one in which nobody was entirely satisfied. But nevertheless, it does put in place the shape of something that can be made to work. It needs checks. It's quite clear that there have to be checks on goods coming from Northern Ireland to Great Britain, and even more so on goods going from Great Britain. Britain to Northern Ireland. But it's pretty clear what those checks are meant to be. They're the checks that operate at the external borders of the European Union generally. So it needs to be de-dramatised and the United Kingdom needs to get down to the detailed implementation of the checks which is it agreed to put in place. Not comfortable, but doable with goodwill. But equally, would you agree with those who say, actually, there's scope for a little bit of flexibility on the EU side as well, whether it comes to sort of sausages or soil or things like that, that there are ways 
perhaps using technology and audit that you can ensure that stuff that's imported from Great Britain doesn't go on into the single market without necessarily having the scale of checks or indeed the sort of outright inability to export that we're seeing at the moment? It'd be nice to think there were uh, opportunities for substantial mitigation, but unless the UK signs up to most of the regulatory key of the European Union, which it's resistant to doing, it's pretty difficult to put that general perception of the need for mitigation into practice. Because once you've got a soft border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, which is our point of the protocol, then it's very difficult to be able to say, look, these sausages are going no further than Belfast, because there's absolutely no way to check they're going no further than Belfast. So although on all sides, there is a desire to make this protocol work in the, in the least intrusive way possible, it's got to be intrusive in order to maintain the integrity of the market. Now, interestingly, you started by saying that there'll be checks from NI to GB, and there are still those who claim that that aspect of bilateral trade will be unfettered. Can you just talk us through what those checks look like? Yeah, the, the, there are checks envisaged by the protocol um, to comply with EU customs code. That means export declarations. Those have been mostly set aside as, as a result of the, the useful agreements, which were struck back in December. There are also a small number of checks envisaged by the protocol on trade between NI and GB with regard to endangered species, particular cultural objects. Not much. I mean, the, the, there are clearly only a limited range of checks envisaged on trade going from NI to GB, but there, there will be some and they will be ones which didn't exist while the UK was a member of the European Union. So, so trade between NI and GB is not unfettered in an absolute sense, it's fettered to a limited extent as foreseen by the protocol. Now just turning to Brexit more broadly, you've written an awful lot about the single market and obviously the integrity of the single market was a key EU wish during those negotiations. Would you say that the EU has managed to protect the integrity of the single market through the Brexit process. Yeah, I think I think the EU is is satisfied with the terms that were agreed pursuant to the protocol. It's, it's got what it wanted, but it's got what it's wanted by actually compromising the integrity of its single market laws, if not that single market on the ground. Because the terms of the protocol tie Northern Ireland into EU rules on goods, but not all of them. It excludes Northern Ireland from EU rules on the free movement of services and the free movement of people. So what we've actually got is an open border between the European Union, Ireland, and the non-European Union, Northern Ireland. And yet it's an open border which is based on a diluted block of rules, which, I, which is less than the full internal market acquis. So all of EU internal market law doesn't apply in Northern Ireland. Bits of it do. That's been enough for the EU to, to be satisfied that it can keep its external border open on the island of Ireland. And just to speculate for a sec, what chance do you reckon there is that the EU might give the same sort of special status to an independent Scotland? That is to say, giving them this sort of weird half-in, half-out position that enables them to avoid a border with England? I suppose the model exists, and although both parties have said this is what we have in the protocol as a response to the unique circumstances that, are, that arise on the island of Ireland, those unique circumstances involve the fact that there are two different states on the island of Ireland. Now, if Scotland were independent, we would have two different states on the island of Great Britain. So it might be that the model would then be applicable also to, to the Scottish experience. Then again, Scotland's a bit different because its border with England is probably much more easily policed than the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. And there's no Good Friday Agreement, which was the issue for Ireland, I suppose. That's certainly an aspect as well, yeah. And one of the things you've pointed out in a lot of your sort of scholarly writings is that the internal market is an ambition 
ambiguous legal concept. Could you just explain to those who don't follow the intricacies what you mean by that? There are at least two dimensions to that. The first thing is the internal market is usually thought of as being about free movement, about the competition rules. It's about keeping borders open. Now, that's part of it, but it's only part of it. Another big part of the internal market is the regulation of that internal market. This is not a purely deregulatory project. So harmonization rules, labor market rules, environmental protection rules, consumer protection rules, they're all part of the internal market, but in a way which is ambiguous. There's no defined notion of an internal market. It's a package deal which has been built up politically over time. And the other dimension to the ambiguous nation of notion of the internal market is, as I've already suggested, that the EU talks a lot about the indivisibility of its freedoms, that goods goes with persons, goes with services, goes with capital, but sometimes it's quite willing to set that aside if the political context dictates it's useful for it to set it to, aside, set it to one side, and the island protocol is a really strong example of that, where the EU insisted on the goods acquis being applicable in Northern Ireland, but not the wider rules on services or people. Do you think it's fair to say that one of the problems during the negotiations on the Brexiter side was a tendency to think that the single market was was simply a free market and not to understand precisely that kind of complexity you've spoken about? I think very much so, yes. I think there was a tendency among some Brexiters to, to wish the world was as they would wish it to be rather than it actually is. So, so their preferred model of, a, of an internal market was a heavy deregulatory model, one in which free movement across borders was guaranteed, but in, within which member states were guaranteed a high degree of regulatory autonomy, and they could, if it wished, regulate in a very light way. And that is one possible model for an internal market. You could quite easily have an EU internal market or any kind of internal market, which is all about opening up borders and not about regulating the territory which is released by those opened borders. But the EU has never had an internal market of that character. It's always insisted on rather aggressive levels of regulation within the internal market, and there was never any likelihood that uh, after Brexit, the UK would be granted the privileges of market access without commitments also to the regulatory infrastructure on which that market's built. Just bear with us, everyone. We're going to take one of our famous short commercial breaks, and we'll be back with you in a very few minutes. Hello. Sorry to interrupt this fantastic podcast. My name's Catherine Barnard and I wanted to tell you about our wonderful newsletter that comes out each week full of news and views. And then if you're really interested, follow us on Twitter too. You're an academic lawyer. Does it does it frustrate you sometimes that in public and political debates there sometimes seems to be a complete lack of appreciation of what the law says and what the law is for, as you can argue it was exemplified during much of the Brexit negotiation? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I used to have such terrible sympathy for my colleagues who worked in criminal justice. And you would talk to them, they would say, you cannot believe what it's like for us turning on the radio, opening a newspaper, putting the television on and hearing politicians talking absolute gibberish about criminal justice, things which we have proved are wrong, time and time again get rebooted as the latest policy. And I used to think, oh, it must be pretty tough living in a world like that. Well, yeah, I've spent the last five years living in a world like that, where every time I turn the radio on or the television on and look at a newspaper, I get someone saying something which is fundamentally wrong about international trade, EU trade, EU law. So, yeah, thanks for feeling my pain. Do you think lawyers could have done a better job at explaining stuff to non-lawyers? I mean, that actually 
lawyers should have been out there a bit more, particularly academic lawyers, trying to make, you know, trying to make things clearer for people who aren't experts in that law? I guess I wish I'd tried harder. I guess I wish I'd had some kind of access. That the problem that I find, and this is at the time as well as looking back, is that I'm just not sure there was an audience out there for academics talking about the detail, about the facts, even in a way that's accessible, which some academics can achieve and some can't. I mean, we, we seem to have had a, a debate about the European Union, which was, was not driven by the businesses which have a substantial stake in the European Union market. It was not driven by politicians mm. outside of this country who had a secure knowledge of the way in which the United Kingdom interacted with the other member states. And it wasn't driven by the experts. And would it have been better had it been driven by experts? Well, in, in some ways it would, but in other ways I understand why people were resistant to experts. They saw them as partisan. They saw them as failing to understand the, the cultural objections and the sense of economic dismay that uh, crowded across many parts of the country during the referendum campaign and since. And I suppose related to that, do you get the sense of frustration with what was seen as foreign law? Uh, it sometimes strikes me amongst EU lawyers that there's this kind of veneration of this body of EU law because it's it's so subtle, it's so sophisticated, it's so fragile, it's a marvellous thing. But somehow the political reality that this was perceived as a law imposed on a country from outside sort of went missing. Do you think there's been a slowness on the part of lawyers to appreciate that sort of political pushback? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I wish everyone who would have wished for a, a different outcome in 2016 would have pushed back on things like Brussels does this, Brussels does that. It would have been very important to aggressively contest the notion that Brussels is doing this and Brussels is doing that and instead to insist that the people who are doing that are the member states in the council and directly elected politicians in the European Parliament. So European Union law comes from representatives of the member states. So, so Brussels is portrayed frequently as this alien interference over which member states have, have no control. And, and that's such a perversion of reality that it is something that there should have been pushed back on. But it, it did feed this notion of the, the external imposition of European Union law, to which people understandably are resistant. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that one of the things coming out of Brexit we're going to have to do is rethink the sort of relationship between politics and law in the sense that one of the things that EU law gave us was this sort of form of quasi-constitutional law that, you know, employment standards or environmental standards could be enshrined in a legal system beyond the reach of Parliament. Should there be things that are enshrined beyond the reach of Parliament in a normative sense? Or actually, in a democracy, should Parliament be able to do what it wants? Within a state or beyond a state? Within the state. Within the state, yeah. I mean, I'm, most people in the world would respond to that question by saying, well, well, of course, there should be things that are beyond Parliament. That We've had our bloodied and troubled histories over the centuries that have generated constitutions that place mm. things beyond Parliament. Uh, and a very good thing too. Uh, we're, we're an unusual country in that uh, we're a lucky country in the sense that we never had anything quite so traumatic as to call for the revolutionary moment of concocting a constitution which does place things beyond parliament. But should we do it? I think there's a very strong argument that we should and some of the events of the last few years show just how dangerous it is to rest everything on the, the will of parliament, especially under a voting system that generates a large majority for a party that has only 
only secured a minority of the votes. You know, the historical lesson is you, you only tend to get a revolutionary moment. You only get a constitution uh, as a result of some dramatic crisis, usually a rather gruesome crisis. Uh, so you have to suffer to get change. OK, that's enough on the trivia. I really want to turn towards the most interesting part of this conversation now, which, of course, is about the European Super League. And for those of you who are interested, Steve's written a fantastic piece on the Steve B- Piers EU law blog about this. On the law specifically, I know we both have feelings about, you know, football per se, but on the law in particular, were there legal constraints that would have made it hard for UEFA to block the Super League if it had gone that far? There would, but they're ambiguous legal restraints. It's clear that uh, UEFA could have taken steps to protect what the Court of Justice has called the integrity of the sport from the Super Leaguers. The problem is knowing exactly what that means. It probably means that UEFA could not simply have banned all the clubs and all the players who were wishing to participate in the Super League. That would have been a disproportionate response. Uh, But nevertheless, UEFA would be entitled to take some steps to protect the integrity of the sport, which probably involves also its role as the monopoly regulator of that sport. But there's no text, there's no legislation which says what UEFA can do and can't do. The only way to find out exactly what UEFA can do and can't do in the face of the Super League would be to have a commission investigation and ultimately to ask the court would be a long drawn out process. Now there's an anomaly here isn't there which you talk about in some detail in your paper which is that UEFA is both a regulator and a commercial participant. Is that a sustainable situation? It probably isn't in the sense that the the, the more that regulatory functions are exercised in a way that advantages the commercial interests of the governing body the more interested and sceptical is the law. So as UEFA takes decisions which advantage its own position at the expense of potential third-party organisers, the more difficult it is for it to sustain its position legally. But it's actually not easy to challenge UEFA. Mm. You need a smart litigant, you need someone who's got deep pockets, you need someone who's willing to act through the relatively slow process of litigation in a context sport which is very fast-moving. So UEFA in practice has a pretty strong position. Now, just finally on the domestic structure of British football, there's been a lot of, it seems to me, sort of overexcited talk about the massive reforms that are now going to be brought into English football as a result of this fiasco and people talking about the German model, purely in legal terms to start with. Are there legal barriers that need to be overcome if the government wants to tell football clubs, right, you're going to be like the Germans now, we're going to have the 50 plus one model? In this country, not so much because Parliament ultimately can do what it wants. So there, there is considerable scope of the UK government through Parliament to make changes to the governance of football should they regard it as politically useful so to do. Uh, it's, it's much easier to reform football domestically because you just do it through the national political process mm-hmm. than it is to reform reform football at a European or a global level because you simply don't have the legislator who is able to do that. And so I think the, the blockages to reforming football governance in the United Kingdom are largely political, not legal. There's plenty of room legally to act. And I suspect I know the answer to this. I mean, I, I very much feel that the gravy train will just roll on, that ultimately, you know, UEFA will make it easier for the so-called laughably titled Big Six to get into all the competitions they want to get into. Do you see meaningful reform coming from the review that been launched? I think it's very difficult to see meaningful reform coming from within an individual country. I think if things are going to change, it's got to be driven transnationally because the problems are transnational, the big competitions are transnational, the big money is all transnational. Uh, so it's got to be, change has got to be brought about multilaterally rather than unilaterally.
multilaterally within individual states. And the, and the only actor that really can act effectively multilaterally is the European Union. So if we're going to get effective change to, to the governance of football, it's got to be the European Union that does it. And the interesting tension at the moment is that whereas for a long time UEFA was extremely sceptical about the European Union's involvement and UEFA would frequently say, look, the autonomy of sport dictates that we should be immune from the intervention of the European Union. Actually, the Super League brings into really sharp focus that UEFA actually needs the European Union. UEFA needs to protect its autonomy, European Union's intervention, which stops the Super Leaguers breaking away in some way. So UEFA might be in a position now where it's poised to surrender its autonomy by allowing the European Union a greater role in the regulation of sport, thereby for UEFA to protect its autonomy from the big clubs. Would your hunch be then that the European Union might well find itself of getting more involved in sport in general and football in particular? I think there's clearly incentives. There's pressure for the European Union to get involved from UEFA, also to some extent from, from fans and those involved in the game. What is more difficult is whether there are the political incentives for the European Union to do that. Almost all of EU sports law involves the application of the competition rules in mm. ad hoc cases. That's easy in the sense that the competition rules are within the gift of the Commission. The Commission can, can use the competition rules wherever it thinks there is a problem. If the European Union is going to be more proactive in the regulation of sport, then it's got to adopt legislation, it's got to establish an agency, so on. That it can only do if sufficient support amongst the member states is forthcoming, and that's less clear to me. Well, we shall wait and see with interest as this story unfolds further. Steve, for the moment, that was absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you.